Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. We just heard Romany Waltz from Pandora Tango Ensemble. My next guest is Lise King, an Emmy Award nominated and Cinema Eyes honored filmmaker and social impact producer. This is part one of a two part show. We just had the Province at International Film Festival and you produced Painting Time and The Town about artist Esteban Del Valle. Yes, so I'm a, pr- a producer on In the Whale, and there's a long story with that. And on the painting time, which the long name is Painting Time in the Town, that was a labor of love that I basically was just did by myself. Writer, producer, director, cinematographer, <laughs> everything, editor. And my son was my assistant, so he got the associate producer credit on that. He was there with me every day working. Past films include Heroin, Cape Cod, USA, Prayer Ribbons, Province Sound to Orlando, Leave No Trace, The Hidden History of the Boy Scouts, Entangled, The Race to Save Right Wells from Extinction, and Swim for Life, among many more. As far as the overarching narrative of your life, can you talk about your mission with these types of films and these social impact? That's a really good question. So it's an interesting question because I... Fairly recently, like within the last few years, kind of looked back and I think it was that whole COVID time during the pandemic when we were all kind of reassessing our lives and kind of going, what am I doing? What am I doing now? What am I doing next? Um, That I looked back on my, the arc of my career, um, which started in New York City, um, working on a project for MTV Networks in 1989 called Decade. Um, It was the first feature documentary produced by MTV Networks at the time um, with these amazing filmmakers, Ted Haynes and um, um, Marty Spanninger, almost Martha Spanninger, um, who is who has a they both have shows on Netflix and stuff these days. So they're still out there working. But that was my first project. um, And I was like, I have this seemingly like meandering career. And then upon that moment of kind of introspection and figuring out what my life and is about and what I want to do with the time that I have remaining here and in this body on this planet. And I realized that there is a connective sort of theme throughout all of it, which you just pointed out, which is about doing work, telling stories for impact that are about, you know, adding light to the sum of light, so to speak, which is why my company's called a measure of light. It's a double meaning of a measure of light of like that spiritual measure of light. And then also um, that when you're using a camera, you're literally like measuring light with your aperture settings and everything. So um, yeah, and it became clear that there was that central theme that it was about showing up and being of service and telling the stories that kind of present themselves in the moment of 
of being important to get out. So can you talk about your relationship with the camera? Did did it start a lot earlier than that? I mean, were you a kid when you picked up a camera for the first time? Oh, that's an interesting question. You're the first person who's ever asked me that question. So I grew up in an artistic home and an artistic community. Um, my mother, a lot of folks here in town and the Outer Cape know her. As, her name is Bunny Perlman. She is an artist. She's a painter. She had Provincetown Dance Theater and Provincetown Dance Company, et cetera, for many years here. So I grew up with that on my mom's side. And my dad um, was an architect. He passed away in 2009. And if I wanted to spend time with him, the way to spend time with him was to put on a hard hat and go to jobs because he was constantly working or go sailing. Uh, Those are the two things I could do with him. Uh, And he was very much about a building that you, an architect's job, a building is a living sculpture and that he was all about imagining, you know, what the experience was like to like to live or work or inhabit that space, to move through that space and how you can shape light and air and movement with the architectural design process. So I grew up with that. And I was a little intimidated by both my parents about like, okay, mom's got the painter thing covered, you know, Um, dad's an architect. He wanted me to be an architect. And I was really interested in storytelling from the very beginning. Um, Maybe I'll be an attorney. Anyway, much to my dad's disappointment, I did not go to law school. Um, (laughs) I was a history major at Mount Holyoke College and graduated not knowing what I was going to do followed the rest of the class to work on Wall Street. A lot of people were doing that in those days. And I worked in investor relations, which is basically like marketing for listed public companies and did that for a little bit of time. And then was offered a job. I had Michael Mailer, my friend who I grew up with here, was the first person who offered me a job on a film project. And then from there, it kind of built into this opportunity at MTV. So I really was more in the the producer seat for you know, do, doing research because of my history degree, I was able to get hired to do research on footage and rights and clearances. But I really picked up a still camera. I had done some photography in college, studied photography, studied semiology of film, but really didn't pick up a camera until many years later when my former partner, my ex-husband and I started a newspaper, a media company called Native Voice Media out in South Dakota, long story. <laughs> and we were writing a lot. So I was a, I've always been a writer and telling stories that way. And we were writing a lot and we didn't have the money to hire a separate person to go and do the photography for the newspaper. We were a bi-weekly national independent Native American press my ex-husband is Lakota, so my children are both enrolled in the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and have strong ties out there still. But that's really when I started being behind the camera was out of necessity as a way to tell the stories. And it was interesting because I always thought of myself as a fairly decent writer, but it wasn't until I picked up a camera that I started really winning awards and getting recognition for my work in a major way. So that was an interesting moment where I was like, oh, the visual arts, that makes a lot of sense. I kind of had just had, I never got an MFA or anything like that. It just 
was in my life and also growing up in Provincetown, of course, uh, between mom here and dad in Sarasota, Florida. Yeah. So that's the first time I really picked up the camera was for that job. That was Coast to Coast from Hiroya Sukamoto. You're listening to Healing Wisdom on WOMR. We're speaking with filmmaker and impact producer Lise King. Yeah, so you were already attuned to light with the Provincetown light and Florida <laughs> light. Yeah, exactly. I didn't recognize it until I actually, you know, it's interesting to talk with you about this because I hadn't really put the two together, but I think all of that training as a kid, my mom was also head of the art department at the New College of Florida. She was a teacher at um, the, the Ringley Museum, which was right in our backyard from where my parents built a house there right on campus at New College. And I remember as a kid spending time hanging out in the, in the galleries at the Ringley Museum and our favorite place for my mom to like teach and for us to hang out. And I was a little kid was the Rubens Gallery. And if you've ever been to the Ringley Museum, there's this huge room with these massive paintings by Rubens and they just fill the, at, at all the four walls. Um, and I remember like lying on the floor there, hanging out. That was kind of my training, I guess, <laughs> as a kid. And I, yeah, so then it kind of translated into then you're just waiting for, you know, a camera is just a technical tool. People say, oh, you know, if you get a better camera, you'll be a better photographer. Well, not necessarily, you know. Um, it's the, 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 the work of, it's all internal. The internal processing, the way you see things, the filter, the lens through which you see the world and form meaning out of what you see and then try to create some order out of it so that you can tell the story to others whether that's a visual medium like on a, on a museum or a gallery wall or you know it's moving pictures the actual technical piece of what camera you're using doesn't matter if you have an iphone you know it doesn't matter if you're using an old brownie camera it doesn't matter like so i think that by the time i picked up an actual machine called a camera then I just had to, had to learn how to use it so that I could have it express what I was, you know, like, so, so there's nothing more disappointing when you're first starting photography or cinematography, when you see something and then you think you captured it and then you go back and you look at it and you're like, I just, that's nothing close to what I, what I saw in that moment, right? So it becomes not just about capturing the form and the light, it's about capturing the feeling that in the soulful impression that you have. And so how do you do that? And that becomes something that is, I think that follows the 10,000 hour rule, you know, which is about how much time you spend, you know, performing a craft till it becomes like you could play an instrument, you know, upside down in the dark, that kind of facility. And so I think that does apply, but yeah, it's, it's gotta be, and you can start simple. You don't have to you don't have to start complicated with difficult 
apparatus, you know. For me, is when I take pictures of people, they can look really awkward, or if they're feeling really safe and comfortable, mm. then they really take up their space. They really inhabit themselves. Then the, the muscles in their face relax and their whole body changes. And then their inner light is captured. True, true. When you're filming, I would think as a documentary filmmaker, you've got to really do some magic to, to create a space where people feel comfortable being themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so much I could say about your question. That's a really good question. The first thing is about asking permission. And sometimes it depends what you're trying to capture. For example, you know, when we were in Ukraine during Maidan, I was in Ukraine during the revolution and I was filming in my, in the square, uh, in the Maidan square, um, another long story to go into another time, but some people if I were interviewing them or if I were in close proximity, you look for the head nod, you want permission. And then sometimes if you're in a space where there's a lot of activity and action going on, you just shoot. You don't have the time. You don't have the, it's not the right moment to to have that kind of communication. So it depends on the circumstance. But that being said, yes, I absolutely agree. When I can make eye contact with someone I believe that that requesting not only is respectful, but it also, as you were pointing out, it yields better work because people open themselves to you. They want to tell their story. There was a moment when I was at the Denver Democratic National Convention and and going around and taking photographs. And there was a moment when Jesse Jackson he was crying. I turned around and I was crouched right behind the where where Michelle and the girls and the family were sitting. And I turned around and he was crying and, and I was holding my camera and I and I asked, can I take your picture? And he nodded yes. And it was one of the best, I think, shots I've ever gotten. And actually, there's a a portrait from and I'm I'm starting with the still photography and then I'll talk about documentary filmmaking because that's a whole other thing but uh i was on the road as part of traveling press um with the obama presidential campaign in 2008 when they were at locations where it was involving you know indian countries so that's what we call it out west indian countries so i was in south dakota i was in new mexico i was in you know various places and one of the places that i went was to Montana, to the Crow Reservation. And that's when Obama, then Senator Obama, presidential candidate, was given an Indian name by the Crow tribe. And I took a bunch of pictures there. I was on traveling press. I was on the airplane with Obama, most incredible experience of my life. And I just found out yesterday they're using one of the images in the Obama Presidential Museum that's being built. So my work will be in the collection. It's very exciting. And that was a moment where there are these tribal people that were around and I absolutely did need to have the, you have, you know, you read 
the vibe. It's a nonverbal communication a lot of times when you're behind a camera and you're asking permission. And I think that's why it yielded such a good photograph. Although you can't always ask for permission, but when you can and you do, you definitely get better results. Joining us now, you're listening to Healing Wisdom on WOMR. My guest today is filmmaker, impact producer, Lise King. This is part one of two, and behind me is Alessandro Esposito with Slow Hot Wind. And I would love for you to talk about telling the truth and revealing things in documentaries for example like with with heroin cape cod usa i i I do know that there was a little bit of uh, controversy that it stirred up there were some people who were afraid business owners that were afraid that it was hurting tourism or that it would hurt tourism you know and i saw the film and i was like but this is just telling it like it is so could you speak to that yeah yeah, that's interesting. That you've, I'm glad that you know about that and that you can, you know, ask that question. Um, um, I was the co-producer on that film. It was the producer, director, writer is Stephen Okazaki, who is four times nominated Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker. I was like a masterclass working with him. And most of the time it was just me and him one-on-one. And it was 18 months of my life working on that project. I was hired very early on. Um, there were times when he was not here. He was working on another film in Japan and it was me and um, another um, woman named Vanessa Carr who was a DP on the project. And it was just the two of us. And it was an interesting experience. So first I want to answer your question then I'm going to go back to the thing about storytelling and permission and truth telling. One of the guys who will remain nameless that I had called about doing an interview was a a fire chief in a particular part of the Cape. And he called me out of the blue after I had left a message, hadn't heard from him in weeks. And he said, you and I, we got a problem. That's how we started the conversation. And I was like, excuse me. And he said, you know, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And that's exactly, I'm just putting on the accent because that's how he was talking. He's old school, man. He was like, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know, you're, you know, you, you, you've lived here a long time. You should know better. You're going to hurt tourism. You're going to hurt the people who live here. And, and I said, you know, and this was in 2014. So this was early in the epidemic when things were just really starting to get clear about how bad it was. And that was a moment where I kind of planted a flag in the sand here. You know, you know, what do they say? That saying in politics, it's the economy, stupid. It's like the money is the most important thing. Keeping the economy going is the number one priority. And my belief always has been, and I don't know that this would ever change, that there's a balance in there. There's a balance between, you know, 
to have a healthy community is not just to have a humming economy. You know, it's not just about profit making. It's about what's the health of the people who live there and their relationships to each other and their relationship as stewards to the land we live in, right? So there is, I believe, a compromise that has to be made in there. world started waking up to this problem of opioid you know crisis and addiction and you know they call it an epidemic for a reason right because it's and that's why we made the film was because we were very you know we were very conscious of the fact that there was work that needed to be done to destigmatize opioid use and misuse and addiction and the 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 tragedies of how many people were passing away. And it that until that point, it was still kind of hidden in the closet. While we made the film at the very beginning of the wave of the public kind of awareness. So I was fortunate in that case where I wasn't out there alone. By the time the film came out on HBO, the governor hosted our world premiere. Governor Charlie Baker hosted our world premiere in Boston. Um, for HBO, um, and that was thanks to Dan Wolf and other, you know, who was a state senator at the time, and um, Maura Healy, who's now our governor, was the, you know, she was one of the co-presenters of our film, and Mary Lou Sutter is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So, see, it was like one of those moments where I was a little early out of the gate. I think that also happened with the COVID pandemic, but then people caught up and it, I, you know, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my voice, but it was just being a little vocal a little earlier than everybody else. So it's interesting. So we had, we had the, the world premiere. I had just graduated from the Kennedy school where I'd also then spent three years as a fellow in human rights policy. And I was able to get into the documentary film program studied with Rob Moss, who's just incredible and Alfred Gazzetti and, um, Mary Stiegley, who was the head of the anthropology department, because it was about social anthropology and that plus my training in human rights policy all kind of came together to inform my, my sort of like awareness when we were making heroin Cape Cod. That was the first kind of actual job that I got coming out of the Kennedy school. Um, and after the the way the way that it happened that that we ended up that my we ended up getting so much support from politicians and policymakers and um that I was actually able to have the job to even contact them was um because normally I found out that's something that the Time Warner lobbyist handles in Washington DC for HBO like filmmakers at that point weren't doing um their own social impact campaigns. They weren't contacting politicians and policymakers. That was not really done yet, which of course now things have really changed since then. But because of the fact that I was, we were, Stephen and I were driving around Falmouth waiting to meet with a couple of the subjects of the film 
Um, and sometimes they would flick out on us, as you can imagine. There was a lot of a lot of waiting and patience, and um, and I had gotten an I, I was still I still had White House press credentials because of my time on the Obama campaign, and then a guy named Shin Inouye was the head of the press um, on the campaign, and then he went in to work in the White House, and he kept me on the list. And I, I you know I went and covered a few events at the White House. But I was getting press releases because I was still on the press list. And it just was this moment, and i it's so vivid in my mind, like a movie, where Stephen's driving, it's cold, winter, Falmouth, looks kind of bleak outside. And my phone is blowing up with aspirational press releases from the Obama White House about how they were going to deal with the oak crisis. And I turned to Stephen and said, <laughs> I think we can take this film all the way to the White House. This is a moment. We're right on the cusp of this being, you know, ready for public messaging. And he was like, nah, and I was like, no, no. And I'm, I can try to, I was trying to be persuasive. And he said, come on, let's just get the film done first, shall we? You know, and I was like, okay, but seriously. Anyway, so he went to bat for me with Sheila Nevins, who had commissioned the film from HBO. For HBO, she's the head of documentary films there. She's since left, now she's at MTV. But Sheila is the godmother of, you know, some say our current documentary film, Golden Age. Um, he asked her directly and she gave me permission to do the social impact work. And so I contacted Dan Wolf and some other folks here on the Cape and he got me in touch with the governor and the rest is history there. I also called some folks I had worked with on a previous project um, in Indian country at the Office of National Drug Control Policy, which is part of the White House. And I cold called them. And this woman picked up the phone. She said, I don't usually pick up the phone, but I'm one of the scientists here. And I think this is a fabulous idea. We should definitely get involved with your film. Let me see what I can do. Anyway, could be a very long story, but keeping it short, we ended up having a screening with the White House on Capitol Hill after the screening with the governor in Boston. Um, and Nancy Pelosi came and she was our keynote speaker. And we had, you know, Senator Ed Markey and Representative Richard Neal and 20 members of Congress and the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy was on our panel and Michael Botticelli, who was the head of the ONDCP. So it was a moment that made me re recognize that um, there's something to this. Like there's a real power in this and being able to tell stories that are important in terms of helping the public good. So I was hooked and yeah, that's kind of the story. <laughs> Do you feel attuned to this, like a higher calling, or do you just feel courageous? Well, you know that the definition of courage is feeling the fear and doing stuff anyway. You know, I mean, so courage is not like you're kind of like oblivious to like the dangers or the risks. You know, courage is when you actually recognize like how dangerous and risky it is and you decide to do it. And um, I think there are a couple couple things and I, I really appreciate that question because um, it goes back to sort of a time in my life when I was 
really feeling very quite quite lost and had been through a lot of loss in terms of like my family and um really my my dad was very disappointed that I as I mentioned that I didn't go to law school um when I called him and said I have a credit on national you know cable with MTV and he was like when are you going to get out of that blanking business and get back to having a real job I love my dad may he rest in peace but he was not happy um so you know he came from a working class family my dad my grandfather my dad's dad was the first Jew in the Philadelphia police force my dad was the first in his family to go to college he was an mp in the navy during the korean conflict and he felt like he'd worked really hard to be a person of achieving the american dream so when i threw caution to the wind and wanted to follow my heart and do this other kind of work instead he was not really disappointed but concerned you know about how I was going to survive in the world. So I just couldn't reconcile what I could see and feel about humanity and the environment and I was I was a young activist and I you know at MTV the the project I did I worked on as an associate producer and did research called Decade I was getting footage in for the earth section. I kind of produced the section. It was about like different parts of genres of life. And the earth section was the one that I was kind of specializing in and environmental issues. We've been speaking with filmmaker and social impact producer, Lise King. I'm Pandora Peoples. This is Healing Wisdom. This is part one of two. Part two will air next week. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. 